Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're halfway through the book, and it's, it's been really good. It's going to continue to be good. What a great book. What a great passage. Today we're going to look through Philippians 3, 1 through 11. It starts to get very technical here, and that will be good for us. On a day that we pass out the Baptist faith and message, a little pamphlet booklet for you to have that is full of uh, doctrine and full of teaching and understanding and theology. It's good that we are at this part because Philippians is a small little book. It's only four chapters. And, and everybody knows that the book of Philippians um, is good and encouraging and positive and so, so many um, memorable, quotable aspects to the book of Philippians. And yet, while it is that, it's also deep. And I want y'all to understand that, that deep and technical and theological and doctrinal and all of that um, doesn't mean that it's not good and sweet and encouraging and happy and fun and enjoyable. We can love the truth of God and be into it and at the same time be happy and enjoyable. The word of God will do that for us. Yesterday was a good Saturday and me and one of my girls, Carolina, had to run out and do some errands. Our family recently got a pet, and so we had to go up to Tractor Supply and get a few things that we needed. And while we were doing that, Val asked us to pick up some hot dogs and hamburgers and bring those home. And so after we left Tractor Supply, uh, we went to Kroger. And, you know, it's fun when you, get, when you have five kids and you get to hang out with just one. It's like a totally different experience. You feel like you're on a on a vacation, an enjoyable time, even just running the tractor supply. It felt awesome, and it was great, and we were, we were holding hands, walking in there, and we were looking at the baby chicks and the baby ducks that they have in tractor supply. It was awesome. We had a good time. We went in Kroger. As we were checking out of, of, of Kroger, we had to walk past the flowers, and Carolina pointed out that there's some really, really pretty flowers there. So I said, let's get some for Mama. So we bought some flowers, and we're going out, and we're getting, in the, we're getting in the van to come back home, and she says, we're riding in the car, and she says, why do you always get mama flowers? I said, well, because I, I love her so much. I said, she is, to me, she's the most important person in the world. Carolina said, well, oh yeah, well, what about God? And you know what? That's a really good question. My family's in trouble if they think that there's a person in my life that seems to me more important than God. I'm serious. Your family's in trouble too if God is not the most important thing in the world to you. I'm serious. If my kids think or see or observe that my dear wife is more important to me than God is, then we have not modeled what it means to know God. Now, this is not like a, 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 a situation where we're trying to say that uh, your wife is not important or such and such is not important. We know that, and you all know that. Please don't take me in the wrong direction. Obviously, she's extremely important, right? She is, to me, the most important person in the world, and my family needs to see that too. 
But when it comes to her being more important to me than God, well, that's a whole other thing. And that's what the Bible is speaking to. In the passage that Matt McBroom read just a little bit ago from Luke 14 in the middle of our service, it's the passage where Jesus says, unless you will get rid of anything that gets in the way of God, you cannot be a follower of Christ. And in that passage, he says, father or mother or brother or sister, nothing gets in the way of God. God, and I mean nothing. He is highest. He is best. He is biggest. He is above all. He is more than all. He is the top. He is the most important thing God is. And we must say that and understand that and believe that, and our lives must be centered on God. And in our passage today, you have Paul writing to the Philippian church this very thing. Read with me, if you will, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though, I'm, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a big passage, what a good one. Again, it's loaded with joy, but it's also rather technical. And so I want to do a little bit differently today. I want to make two uh, big statements, two clear truths that we know in this passage. And once we have gotten those and, and kind of built ourselves up on those two truths, then let's walk through and understand what he's saying here in context, okay? Number one, Jesus is the key to life. Jesus is the key to life, okay? And you know how important a key is, all right? Imagine, right? Imagine if all of us had showed up here today and we were outside and we were ready to do all that we're doing here this morning, but we didn't have a key to get in. Can you picture that for just a second? All of us in the parking lot, perhaps you've been there before, you've shown up somewhere before and they didn't, they didn't unlock the doors yet. But picture all of us just kind of huddled up around the door and you're waiting on the person to get there with the key, 
all right? The key is the very thing that gets you into understanding all that is about God, okay? And Jesus is the key to life. Let me show you this. Jump over to verse 9. He says in verse 9 that he wants to be found in Christ. And then he says this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The apostle Paul here in, in, in just a few verses, really in one major sentence, is speaking to all of the big things in life. Life, death, after death, what happens to you after death, how do you get safe after death, where do you go after death. He's speaking to all of the huge things that happen in life. And he says that Jesus is the key to getting those, the key to life, getting life, receiving life, having life is Jesus. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. There is no heaven apart from Jesus. Jesus is the key to those things. Notice that here in these verses, he says clearly, not having a righteousness of my own. It is not in me or of me or from me to be right with God. It cannot be. It cannot be. Please understand this. People go to church, they walk out of here, and they get back to being self-righteous. People live their lives, they don't read the Bible, they don't understand God, and they get back to being self-righteous. And we think that in us can be found some goodness or some rightness or some righteousness, and it can't. Oh, it can't. In order for Jesus to be good news to you, you must understand that you left to yourself is bad news. Now, don't get me wrong. I realize that in you are some good things. You've been nice. You may have held the door for somebody as you came in, and yesterday you may have served your neighbor or something like that. I'm not saying you haven't done some good deeds, but I'm saying you're not altogether righteous, and God's holy standard is righteousness. And Paul confesses here that he does not have a righteousness of his own, and he knows that. And what he wants is righteousness. And so he says, look, the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Notice that he thinks he is righteous and that he has righteousness, but that righteousness has been given to him or imputed to him or credited to him because of Jesus' righteousness. And how did he get it? By faith. It even says, which comes through faith. And after he says that, he says, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. So here is what he is saying. Do you have life? Do you have eternal life? Do you, are you on your way to heaven? Are you right with God? And the answer is nothing that you have done. Nothing. It is what do you believe? And I know that that sounds crazy, but that's why we passed out a Baptist faith and message. That's why we are digging in the Bible today. That is truly the answer. Do you have life? Are your sins forgiven? Are you going to heaven? Are you right with God? It's not what you have done. Stop saying it and stop thinking it, but rather, what do you believe? And I don't mean a bunch of right and wrong, and I don't mean a little book nerd, and I don't mean somebody who all you do is study. I mean, is your hope found in Jesus Christ alone? 
The key to life is Jesus. He is what you need. He is the Savior, and he is the answer to whatever you have going on in life. My first grader came home this week, and she said, hey, at lunch we were talking, and everybody at the cafeteria lunch table got to talking about God, and um, and so uh, this one girl that I was talking to spoke up and said, well, me and my family, we don't believe in God. Pretty common conversation these days, right? We're not shocked by that. That happens all the time. She said, well, me and my family don't believe in God, but that's okay. My mom and dad said, we're all still going to heaven. And I get that. I mean, that, that's certainly gonna make your first grader feel better if you're gonna tell them that y'all don't believe in God. You ought to say that. But I would love to hear anybody try to explain, seriously, heaven, or why even tell them that if you're gonna say you don't believe in God. Wouldn't you love to hear that conversation? Wouldn't you have loved to hear the first graders spit back some questions and see where they went from there? That'd be an odd conversation. Probably be over. Notice that what is happening just in that. Now, I didn't have the conversation. I don't know what the parents said. And I'm just hearing from one first grader to the next first grader to me. But I want you to notice that there's a desire for the first grader to be comforted, right? You're telling them that they're all going to heaven. There's a desire for them to not be worried or upset or bothered. And what you see here is what the Bible does teach us, that God has made me and you and everybody else on the inside filled with a conscience, filled with the image of God, where we want to be right. And we want peace. And we want security. And we want those things. Because God made us. In short, we want God, but we don't know how to find God. We don't have a righteousness of our own. That's why we need to know about Jesus and his righteousness. And that's why we can't get it from him. In Romans chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, but you can take a note of this. Listen to this conversation. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Listen to this. Now picture this lunchtime conversation of first graders and listen to now what the Bible says. They show, talking about somebody who does not know the word of God, a Gentile. They don't read the Bible, they don't know the Bible, which is what we have at the cafeteria lunch table. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God has made our consciences to bother us. And our consciousnesses, according to Romans 2, our consciences bear witness to the truth of God. Now, you can ignore your conscience. And you can run from it. You can deny it. You can tell it to shut up. And you can fill it up with other stuff. But it's there. The conscience is not enough to save you. Feeling wrong about yourself is not enough to lead you to repentance. Conscience is not necessarily Holy Spirit conviction. But it is worth noting right there that that's a real thing. Why in the world, if you're going to be so strong to tell your kid that there's not a God and we don't believe in God, do you feel the need to tell them that God has a place, heaven, that we'll all go to? 
If you don't need God, then you don't need God's eternal home. If you don't need God, you don't need God's kingdom. If you don't have God, how will there be a heaven? What I'm wanting us to see is that these things do matter to us. These things are in our hearts and in our minds, and we think about these and try as much as we want. Listen, nobody, I promise you, nobody in my household has told my first grader to go get into an eternal life conversation at the first grade lunch table. We have not. Those things come up even among first graders. Hey, those things come up among atheist first graders. real no matter where you're going or where you come from or where you're at people are thinking about God folks and his word tells us how we can know him but we know him through Jesus he is the key to life he is what you need he is the savior he is the answer but secondly, not only is the key to life, hear me though, Jesus is the key in life. So same thing except for to life in order to get life and in life while you have it, Jesus is. Jesus is the key in life. Look at verse seven. But whatever gain I had, and he had a lot of gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, look at this. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. What a statement. The Apostle Paul is teaching us that whatever in life was good or gained, whatever the world might say is good, he says it is not as good as the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Listen, it's not something Jesus gives him. It's not a gift of God. It's God. He's not only the key to life, but he is the key in life. This means that Jesus is not only what you need, but Jesus is what you get. Jesus is not just the savior, but Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is not just the answer to life, but he is the purpose of life. Paul says, I want to get Jesus, and when I've got Jesus, he is more important to me than anything else else I will count everything else as lost and he even says there it is rubbish if you keep going to verse 8 for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ in the bulletin it says truly Jesus over everything there is no joy like the joy from Jesus there is no peace like the peace from Jesus there is no holding you together like Jesus holds you together there is no understanding in life like the understanding that you get from Jesus and even the Bible says that it is an understanding that surpasses all comprehension Jesus truly is the difference maker the key to life and the key in life and we must believe these things we must understand them and as a church, we have this thing where we want to help you all become better followers of Christ. We want you to get stronger in understanding what the Bible teaches. And so, what's always a big concern of mine or of ours is for you all who have learned, listen to me, that Jesus is the key to life. You've been around enough to know that you are not getting forgiveness of your sins. God is not pleased with you on your own. And the only way to eternal life is through Jesus. And so you've believed. But listen. There are quite a few of you who are believing that he's the key to life, but are not yet believing that he's the key in life, that he's the answer. 
that he's the joy, that he's the key, the secret. We've got to get that. That's why America especially is full of people that say they're Christians that are so inconsistent. We say we believe in Jesus for heaven, but we hardly want to live our lives in faithful accordance with him and his ways. We need to get into his word and see that he's the key to life and he's the key in life. Imagine being able to say, I count everything else in my life as loss compared to what it means to have Jesus. I can have a conversation with my daughters about how much I love my wife, but I do not love her more than God. He is the A1. And we are to make sure that that is what we believe. And that is how we operate. That God is the highest of highs. He is our top priority. He is our Lord, God, and King. So he's the key to life and he's the key in life. And you see this here. But now I want to go back to verse 1, and in our remaining time, I want to walk through this and see why he says those things. Those things are just kind of some statements or or beliefs that we have that you see that are driving this. But now let's see it in context. Remember, we have Paul writing a letter to the church, and he's wanting them to be united. Well, if you're wanting to insist on unity, listen to me, it means that there must be some disunity. Okay, or some threats of disunity, or some influences of disunity. And so this is what we see here today. Verse one's a little bit unique. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It seems odd that he says this right here. It sounds like he's wrapping it up. He says, finally, but he's not wrapping it up, right? If you look at chapter four, verse four, he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you look at chapter four, verse 10, He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, right? He's talking about rejoicing quite a bit, but he's been doing that all along. If you look at uh, chapter one, verse 18, he says, in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is often rejoicing despite his circumstances. He had been in prison, in jail there in Philippi, where the Philippian jailer was converted, and yet Paul is a joyful person, and he is spreading this rejoicing onto them. Verse one seems a little bit out out of place, But as anyone who knows what it means to write and get to pouring out your heart to somebody you love, you can uh, be trying to wrap up and then say, oh, wait, one more thing. And I think that's what happens here. Now let's look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Strong language here. He's not talking about dogs. He's talking about people. We use the word dog sometimes, don't we? A lot of different ways to use the word dog. You can use it like it's a friend. You can use it as a good way when you're describing an athlete. But a lot of times we use it as a bad way, right? Man, he's a dog. Somebody who's selfish. Somebody who uses people. Somebody who thinks about nobody else but himself. Somebody who's willing to hurt other people as long as he gets his way. Man, he's a dog. But I don't know if that's what he's meaning here. 
Here he's talking about the people that are causing disunity in the church, the people that are messing up the the people of God. Here's what happened a lot in the early church, right? Remember, uh, Jesus was a Jew, right? And God started with Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. And the message of God, the whole message of God, came through the people of Israel, and then it expanded on to the Gentiles, and truly God and his message is for all people, right? Well, in the, in the early church, as Jesus and, and, and Jesus being the Savior came more and more clearly into the picture that here's how you get right with God, through the forgiveness of sins of God giving his son, it, it became, it, it became uh, complicated or confusing, if you will, to the people who tried to explain that without the truth. Now, it's, it's not complicated and confusing when you stick to what God says, but when people start to teach on the, their own feelings or thoughts or perspectives or experiences Apart from this, you will have confusion. And so here's what happened. You had Jewish people who had come to believe in Jesus as the Savior who started teaching Gentiles about getting right with God. That's a good thing. But then they started telling them, listen, that you had to get circumcised. You had to get circumcised to identify that you're a Christian. That's what happened. It's a big issue in the New Testament. They would go and tell Gentiles that you have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. And it was upsetting. And it brought confusion. Because the Apostle Paul had already been there and already taught them and already preached the gospel and had already explained to them how you get right with God. And they had already believed and they had already repented and people had come to faith in Christ and they had forgiveness of sins and they had been filled with the Holy Spirit and they were a true church and they were children of God and all of that good stuff. And yet then here come these people teaching a different message or a crooked message or a halfway message. Hey folks, listen to me. The truth only presented halfway is not the truth. A church that only preaches some of the Bible is not a church. Christians that only believe some of what God says are not Christians. We read the whole Bible, and if we don't know it, then we better get into it, and we better not be saying things that aren't true, because we're doing half true and half untrue. That's not the truth. That's inconsistent. That is inaccurate. That's why you ought to be careful with the church and careful with the denomination and careful with anybody that bears the name of God or Jesus or church or Christianity or anything. God gave us a book, and we need to know it. And when we start being taught, by people, we need to make sure that they know what this says. We don't take this stuff lightly, and you shouldn't. It should be taken seriously. Since Christians are being led astray, Paul says, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Now, the Bible says, listen to me, if you confess your sins to God, who is a spirit, if you confess your sins to God, You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Anybody who is convicted of their sins, who bows their heart and life down to God, and says, God, oh, have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sins through the work of your son, Jesus. They will be forgiven. They will be right with God. 
if somebody comes along and says, yeah, yeah, that's true, but you've also got to go and have a, a, a procedure done literally to your body, have some skin cut off so that we know that you're a Christian. <clears throat> no, that's not true. That's not true. And so what you have here, check this out, Paul calls them dogs and evildoers, and he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. If there's no meaning in circumcision, if there's no worship in circumcision, and you're telling the people to be circumcision, you're just making a big, bloody, painful mess. You're mutilating the flesh, and it's got nothing to do with God. He says, watch out for them. And then in verse three, he makes this incredible statement. We are the circumcision. This is outstanding. We are the circumcision. Hey, I know there are people, I'm telling y'all to not get circumcised. And I know there are people coming in telling you to get circumcised, but get this, we are the circumcision. Here's what he means. Turn with me. I told you not to turn last time, but I want you to turn this time to Romans 2. Turn back just a few books to Romans. It's the same place that I told you to turn last time, but it's a few passages later. Check this out. Circumcision, according to a Jew, means you've had uh, your foreskin cut off, all right? That's circumcision according to a Jew. It was something they did uh, as their people to identify that they were uh, the Jewish, they were the people of God. But circumcision according to the new covenant, listen to me, circumcision according to the new covenant means that God spiritually has cut out your old dead heart and given you a new heart. That's the new covenant spiritual circumcision. The Bible talks about that. Read with me at Romans chapter two, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Okay, now if you never disobey, then that would matter. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision, meaning it's just a more act of obedience or disobedience that's not getting you anywhere. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then... He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So he's just going back and forth on which one matters, which one doesn't. But watch verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Folks, we know worship is of the heart. This is a spiritual thing. We don't care, and God doesn't care in so many ways, what you do. He cares if you are trusting wholly in Jesus. He cares if your heart is bowed down and surrendered today, that Jesus died to rescue your soul. That's what God's looking for. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care how much money you just put in the offering plate. He doesn't care how much good you did this week if you're thinking that earns you something. Now, the reason why I said not, not holy, because obedience does matter, but it does not matter as far as earning you something or getting you somewhere with God. It doesn't. He's looking inside of you right now, and he's seeing if your heart is embracing the work of Jesus. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Verse 29, last verse, look. But a Jew is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision, the true spiritual circumcision, is when God has come to you and done a work on the inside, cut out your dead, sinful heart, and given you one that's alive, made you born again, and you trust Jesus. That is what it means to be circumcised spiritually. And so that's what's more important, and it does not matter truly whether you've been circumcised or not. It doesn't physically. What matters is does your heart trust in Jesus? So turn back to Philippians 3, where he says, we are the circumcision. So now he's going to explain to them how he knows they're the circumcision. He says three things. Look at this. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Outstanding. Outstanding. Here are three characteristics to show you that we are truly focused on God, right? We worship by the Spirit. We glory in Christ. That's the only thing that we want to get attention. That's the only thing that we want to get under the magnifying glass. That's the only thing that we uphold on a billboard for everybody to see. That's the only thing that we think is deserving of praise and honor and devotion and adoration and love. He is the top of it all, Christ Jesus. And we don't put any confidence in the flesh. No boasting here, no pats on the back, nothing that we want you to see in us that is worth anything. It's all about Jesus, all about Jesus, all about Jesus, and he's telling them that. So somebody comes along, and they're saying they're Christian, but they're giving them a message of something that they need to do, and they need to be like them, and they need to get this physical circumcision done to them. He's saying that's not it. He even calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. That's a big statement. So in verse 4, to make his point even more drastic, he says this. After saying we don't put any confidence in the flesh, he says, though, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says if you, if you want to have that conversation, that debate, that argument about how good we are or how faithful we are or how much we've done for God... Although I'm saying there is zero value in that, I'll have that conversation with you so as to highlight how wrong you are. So I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see your king and, and raise you an ace, in other words, okay? You think that your obedience is worth something? Okay, well, let me show you my obedience, and then I'm going to tell you my obedience is better than your obedience or more than your obedience or more consistent than your obedience, and then I'm going to tell you it got me nowhere with God, and it will get you nowhere with God, and that's what he does. There's no place for boasting. There's no place for confidence in the flesh. But since they have confidence in the flesh, he'll say, let me match you with my confidence in the flesh. In other words, confidence in who I am, and I'll show you how vain it is. I'll show you the vanity of it. And so he does. He says, I have more than anybody. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the Old Testament teaches. To be identified as a people of God, as a true Jew, should be circumcised on the eighth day. He says he was. Now notice, here we have a man who is preaching over and over again that circumcision doesn't matter, but he's able to say to the people who say circumcision does matter, hey, I've been circumcised. Next he says, of the people of Israel. I'm a Jew. It's my heritage. Those are my people. It's where I'm from. It's who I roll with. Abraham's my great, 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 great granddad. Isaac, Jacob, I know all of them. I got the family line. 
All the things y'all boast about, I got that too. He goes on, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'll tell you specifically which one I'm from. There are 12 tribes. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews. Spoke the language. Knew the culture. As to the law, how much did he pay attention to the law? Because listen, we've all met, listen, we've all met uh, 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 religious people before who say they're religious and when it, listen, when it serves them well, they like to tell you that they're religious, but when it's not serving them well, they say not so much. I'm a Muslim, but I don't really practice. I'm a Catholic, but I don't really do those things, right? I'm this and I'm that, but I don't, I don't really keep up, you know? I'm a Baptist, but I don't follow Christ. What a shame. Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Nobody took this as serious as I did, he says. Y'all, a Pharisee is the top of the top of striving, of rigorous effort to be obedient to God's Old Testament, Old Covenant law. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has just taken the whole confidence in the flesh conversation and pointed out to them, y'all wanna have that conversation, we can have it. And while y'all are kinda over here sticking your chest out because of how good you are, you won't do it in front of me because in the vanity of confidence, I'm better than you all are. Now he knows that's a ridiculous conversation to have. Men, listen to me, because this hits home. Men, proud of who's a better man is the most vain thing in the world. Get over it, men. Nobody gives a rip how good of a man you think you are. Seriously. We appreciate it. You may be impacting some lives. But as a way of being right with God, that's getting you nowhere. It is so vain. If you're still looking around at some of the bum men in the world as a way of making yourself feel good about how good of a man you are, you aren't looking to God. You're not focused on God. You don't know the gospel. It's vain. We don't put confidence in the flesh. God doesn't care if you're a good man or a bad man coming to him. God wants you to know he gave his one man, Jesus, to die for you. So After Paul shows them how vain it is to argue about who's better or to boast about who's better actually, he comes back and he says at verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The apostle Paul had come to know the most important thing in life is getting Jesus. That's the first and the last. 
That's the key to it, and that's the key in it. That's the need and the gift. That's the savior and the treasure. That's the answer and the purpose Jesus is. And so listen, that is why we are people that hold up this message as the good news and the best gift of all and the urgent message of salvation the whole world needs to hear because whether we are on the streets or whether we're in strong homes, whether we are with the uppity or whether we are with the lowly, whether we are with the educated or the uneducated, everybody is equal before God as people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he loves them and he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for them. And if they will stop clinging to a righteousness of their own and they will hope in the righteousness of Jesus, they will be saved. They will get him. The awesome thing about getting Jesus is that you do not earn him, you get him as a gift through faith and repentance. Do you remember when Ephesians 2 said, not by works, so that no one would boast. Do you remember that? Do you remember when Galatians 6.14 says, far be it from me that I would boast of anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus. Then it comes back to this passage here at the end, 9 through 11, where he talks about how he got Jesus. See, all of that is showing to them, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, that they don't have Jesus. They think it's in good works or it's in effort or in goodness, and it's not. And then back to 9, 11, 9 through 11, he talks about how he got Jesus. And for those of you that care, you see justification in verse 9, sanctification in verse 10, and glorification in verse 11. Verse 9, he gets righteousness through Jesus. Verse 10, he is now growing in his relationship of the resurrected Jesus, growing in that, in the power, knowing him, sharing in the suffering, becoming like him, it says in verse 10. Becoming like Jesus. That's the sanctification in verse 11, glorification, that by any means possible I may attain that. Outstanding. It's a loaded passage. And it's Paul pointing out Jesus over everything. In the same week that that conversation happened with my first grader, my fifth grader came home and said, I really got in a big conversation today about God. And he was a little bit bothered, heavy hearted. He said that the conversation came up as they were waiting in the car rider line. Again, we are not pushing this out. Do they need to go have conversations like this? I assure you. They just come up. When Eli said something about God, his good friend said, I don't know about that God. And Eli said, what do you mean? And the fifth grade friend said, I don't know if I can believe in a God that lets kids get cancer. I don't know if I can believe in a God that would let my parents, both of my parents, die. Folks, if you think living your life in a good way is gonna help out this hurting world, stop it. We need God. 
in one week. My first grader's having a conversation with kids about being atheists, and my fifth grader's having a conversation with a kid who brings up God himself because both of his parents are passed away. Life ain't shallow. Life is deep. Hearts are real. They feel it, and there's only one answer. Eli said to him, but you can believe in him. He said, well, if he would let those things happen, why would I believe in him? And I loved the heart of where it went next and the sincerity of it. He said, why would he let those things happen to me and my family? And Eli said, I don't know why God let that happen. But I know that we can trust him in it. We don't know why he did that. But we can trust him. He said, well, why can I trust him or why would I want to trust him if he lets that happen to me? And Eli comes home and he said, Dad, I didn't know what to say. Jesus is the key to life. He is the key in life. Your heart knows it. You may not be having those conversations, but the people around you know it. Our wrestles and our struggles and our consciences are pushing us to think about these things. They're pushing us to think about these things and we avoid talking about them. We don't have the hard conversations because they're hard and they're awkward. But the Apostle Paul is willing to say with great confidence, I don't care about any of it except getting Jesus. Who cares whether it's a good day or a bad day? whether you got the money or whether you don't. Who cares? It's about God. He's the treasure. He's the answer. He's the key to life, and he's the key in life. May God move us to be trusting followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. Thank you, God, that we can say, I count it as loss. God, give us that healthy perspective, balance that you you are better than everything, Jesus over everything. Father, thank you that in you we can have your righteousness, your goodness in your life. We pray for it. In Jesus' name, amen.